The Old Testament reading for today is 1 Kings 17, 8 through 24. 1 Kings 17, 8 through 24. The New Testament reading, Luke 7, 11 through 17, and that is the sermon text. 1 Kings 17, 8. Would you hear now the reading of God's holy and inspired word? Then the word of the Lord came to the prophet Elijah. Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son so that we might eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear, go and do as you have said, but first make a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty, until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said. And she and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, why have you, why have, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carrying him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? And he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life Come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took this child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord that is in your mouth is true. Let us go now to the New Testament reading, which is Luke 7, 11-17. Luke seven eleven. Soon afterward, he, that is Jesus, went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. 
And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. This now the reading of God's most holy word. May he add his blessing to the preaching of it this morning. At our youth study last Wednesday evening, one of our young people asked a good question about the Gospels in general. Should we think that every miracle that Jesus ever performed is recorded for us in one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John? And my answer was, I don't think so. In fact, the last verse of the Gospel of John says, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did, were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So then, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were selective in their reporting of the deeds of Jesus. I think this is a very significant observation, for it helps us to see that the Gospel writers, Luke included, did not intend to provide us with an exhaustive chronological account of everything that Jesus said and did. Instead, they told us the truth about what happened in, very, in a very careful, selective, and I would say even artful way, so as to communicate a message. Stories, at least good ones, do this. I, I hope you would agree with me. Good storytellers know how to introduce characters and develop themes in such a way so as to convey a message. And there is something like this going on in the Gospels. The Gospels are a record of true history, but the sayings and events recorded are carefully selected and stitched together so as to convey a message, a message that is bigger than any one of these stories can convey on its own I did attempt to show you this in the sermon last Sunday on Luke 7, 1-10. through 10. There Luke tells the story of the healing of a Roman centurion's servant. He tells this story right after his account of Jesus' sermon on the plain, not merely because the one event happened after the other, but to hold this Roman centurion up as an example of one who lived according to the ethic that Jesus had just preached about. This centurion was commended by Jesus for his great faith. And what was so great about his faith? One, he believed that Jesus could heal, even from a distance, by the word of his power. Two, he believed that Jesus could heal because he knew something about who Jesus was. He was a holy man with great authority, the Messiah, the word of God incarnate. And three, his faith was said to be great because he did not only talk the talk, he walked the walk. He lived the kind of life that Jesus called all of His disciples to live in that sermon that He had just preached on the plain. The centurion was humble. He loved even His political enemies. He was gracious, generous, and kind to others. Yes, even to this lowly servant of His, and, the, and even the Jews over whom He ruled. Furthermore, when Jesus commended the centurion for His great faith, He said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. And this comment should prompt us to contrast the faith of this Roman centurion, the great faith of this Roman centurion, with the great lack of faith 
displayed by the scribes and Pharisees. Notice that their lack of faith was described immediately before Luke's account of Jesus' Sermon on the Plain. So then in Luke's Gospel, Jesus' Sermon on the Plain is bracketed by examples of those who on the one hand lacked faith in Christ and lived self-centered, self-righteous, judgmental, and unloving lives. And on the other hand, a man who was humble and lowly, who loved even his enemies and treated others with generosity, kindness, and respect. And what is so astonishing about uh, this fact? Well, the thing that is astonishing is that you would expect it to be the opposite. You would expect that the religious elite of Israel would have great faith and live humble and godly lives, but they lacked it. This Roman centurion, on the other hand, possessed great faith and lived a humble life before God and man, and it is meant to astonish us. Why is this great faith present amongst a Roman centurion like this? Well, it is by the grace of God. And so God's grace is astonishing. Jesus Christ takes everything and turns it on its head. That is the message that is being presented to us in Luke's Gospel. So all of the stories that Luke tells us about Jesus, His words and His deeds, are carefully selected. And they are carefully placed. They are stitched together so that they convey a message, a message bigger than the individual stories themselves. Ultimately, Luke wrote what he wrote so that Theophilus, remember him from the introduction to Luke's gospel, and all who love God along with him, may have certainty concerning the things they have been taught. I I give you a review of the previous sermon and, and remind you about how the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are put together so that we might consider each and every story very carefully and ask the question, why is this story here? What what is its purpose? What message is it conveying in the progression of Luke's gospel? Specifically this morning we are going to ask the question, why does Luke tell us the story of the raising of an only of a widow's only son from the dead? Why does Luke tell us this story? And and three reasons come immediately to mind. The first is this, and I think this is the most obvious reason. It is so that we might know for certain that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Uh, This point has been made over and over again throughout our study of Luke's Gospel, and it will continue to be made. It is the purpose for which Luke wrote. He wants us to be certain that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the Savior of the world. The miracles that Jesus performed, including this one, were signs... They were signs to confirm that Jesus was who He claimed to be, the promised Messiah, and that His words were true. And by the way, the apostles of Jesus were also enabled by God to work miracles in the days of the early church and after Christ's death, burial, and resurrection and ascension to the right hand of the Father. The book of Acts tells us about these miracles performed by the apostles and some of their associates The letters of Paul also make mention of those who had miraculous gifts in the early church, the gift of healing, etc. And these miracles performed by the apostles of Jesus and some who were associated with them functioned in the same way. They were were signs that confirmed their word was true. Take Acts 14.3, for example. This is about Paul and Barnabas at Iconium. 
at Iconium. They had a hard time in that city. We are told in verse 2 that the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. And in verse 3 we read, So they remained for a long time in that city. It's a strange thing to do. They had a hard time in that city. So they stayed a long time. Speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Do you see the connection here? They remained in that place. They spoke boldly the word of the Lord. And the Lord granted them the ability to work signs and wonders so that their word might be confirmed. These miracles performed by Paul and Barnabas with him were done so as to confirm the message that they brought, to confirm that it was true and that it was from above. And we should remember the first Kings 17 passage that we read just a moment ago. In that story, a great miracle was performed through Elijah the prophet. A widow's son was raised. And at the conclusion of that story, the widow spoke to Elijah saying, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. So do you see the effect that this miracle had upon this foreign woman, this widow who had lost her son? This miracle was good in and of itself. It was a blessing to her, of course. But it brought along with it the greater blessing of confirming the message of the prophet. Now she she knew that this was truly a man of God, a prophet from God and that the word that he spoke was true. So I am simply drawing your attention to the fact that the miracles performed by the prophets of old and the apostles of Jesus and their associates in the days of the early church were intended to confirm that the word they spoke was true. And the same must be said of the miracles performed by Jesus. They were signs, signs that confirmed his message, signs that confirmed his claims. Jesus is the promised Messiah. The miracles he consistently performed demonstrated that it was so. You can see that this was the effect that this miracle had on those who witnessed it and those who heard about it. In verses 15 through 17 of of Luke 7, we read, And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. I wonder if they understood just how much so God had visited His people even through the Incarnation. And this report about Him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. It hardly needs to be said that ordinary men do not have the power to raise people from the dead. And this young man was certainly dead. He had been dead long enough to make preparations for a funeral procession. When Jesus touched the bier, which was more like an open cradle or a couch that was carried than a, than a closed coffin, when He touched the bier and said, Young man, I say to you, arise, the young man was raised and even began to speak, which indicated that he was truly alive and fully restored. It is no wonder that this got everyone's attention, for God alone has the power to give life to those who are dead. This is true physically and spiritually, by the way, brothers and sisters. And yet Jesus raised him by the word of his power. This miracle of the raising of the widow's only son functioned as a sign that Jesus was truly the promised Messiah and God with us. It is also seen in the passage that follows that this miracle functioned as a sign. That passage that we will come to next week, Lord willing, 
is about John the Baptist and the question that he sent to Jesus. Verse 20, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Are you really the one? Are you really the Messiah? Jesus' answer is found in verse 22. Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. And the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. I want you to notice that Jesus did not relieve John's doubts by saying, Go and tell John what you have heard. But rather, Jesus relieved John's doubts by saying, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The good news of the arrival of the Messiah and of God's kingdom was accompanied by these signs and wonders worked by Jesus. And these signs confirmed that the words of Jesus were true. Here Jesus raised a young man from the dead, a marvelous and powerful sign indeed. If I may say one more thing that is somewhat tangential. We believe that God speaks, that our God is a God who reveals Himself to His creatures. But I would ask you to consider the whole sweep of redemptive history and to see that our God does not only speak, our God also acts. He acts so as to confirm His Word by His his actions. I'll draw one thing to your mind so that it might jog your, your thinking on this. God spoke powerfully in the days of Moses, did He not? God spoke very powerfully uh, through, the, through Moses and to the people of Israel. He even spoke directly to them. But the words of God in those days, the word of God that came to the people of God, they were accompanied by many signs and wonders. Yes, even the redemption of Israel from Egyptian bondage. And so it is. Throughout the history of redemption, God speaks, but His Word is delivered alongside action. And of course, nowhere is this more true than when it comes to the ministry of Jesus Christ, the eternal Word of God who came in the flesh. God spoke, He gave us His Word, but He acted. He acted, especially through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is not the only reason to be observed, though. Why does... Luke tell us about the raising of this this young man. Secondly, we need to see that Jesus raised the widow's only son, and Luke tells us about it, so that we might know for certain that Jesus is compassionate and kind to poor sinners, plagued by sin and its awful effects. Truly, this is a heartbreaking story. Here we are told of a mother grieving the death of her son, A situation like this is sad under any circumstances. But we are also told that this woman was a widow, and that this was her only son, and that he was a young man when he died. And so this story is terribly sad. J.C. Ryle, whose little commentary on Luke I've come to appreciate very much, says, All funerals are mournful things, but it is difficult to imagine a funeral more mournful than the one here described. It was the funeral of a young man, and that young man the only son of his mother, and that mother a widow. There is not an item in the whole story which is not full of misery. And all this misery, Ryle says, be it remembered, was brought into the world by sin. 
God did not create it at the beginning when He made all things very good. Sin is the cause of it all. Sin entered the world when Adam fell and death by sin, citing Romans 5.12. Brothers and sisters, the effects of sin are truly awful. And we are reminded of this by the story that is before us today. Our, Our catechism also helps us to remember that the effects of sin are truly awful. Question 22 of our catechism asks, What is the misery of that estate wherein man fell? If I, might put that in, if I were to put that into modern language, the question is, what is so miserable about this fallen state that we are now in? What are the miseries that are associated with man's fall into sin. Listen carefully to the answer. All mankind, by their fall, lost communion with God. I'm struck by the fact that that is the first thing that is mentioned. Here is the first and most miserable thing about man's fall into sin. Communion with God was lost. The relationship between God and man was broken, if I may speak in that way. That is the most miserable thing, but our catechism goes on are under His wrath and curse, and so made liable to all the miseries of this life, to death itself, and to the pains of hell forever. This is a true statement. And our catechism reminds us of this terrible truth to prepare us for the good news of Jesus Christ. The very next question in our catechism, question 23, asks, Did God leave all mankind to perish in the estate of sin and misery? Answer, God, having out of His mere good pleasure from all eternity elected some to everlasting life, did enter into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the estate of sin and misery and to bring them into an estate of salvation by a Redeemer. And from there our catechism tells us all about this Redeemer. He is Christ the Lord. We learn about His person, the salvation He has accomplished and how this salvation is received through faith in Him alone. Brothers and sisters, can you see that these truths, which are stated so beautifully and succinctly in our catechism about our sin and misery and salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, are pictured here in Luke's Gospel as he tells the story of Jesus raising the only son of a widow from the dead. These truths that are stated Uh, in, in a direct fashion in our catechism, are portrayed in this story that is here before us this morning. The situation was a miserable one. Death had ravaged the life of this woman. And death, we know, is the result of sin. Adam's first sin and ours also. This sin, this scene of, of, of miserable sorrow and mourning illustrates the miserable and mournful condition of the human race now that sin has entered the world and death through sin. Left to herself, this poor woman had no hope concerning the death of her son. And so it is with the human race. If God were to leave us alone in our sin and misery, we would be without hope. Death would swallow us up, and after death there would be only judgment. But notice that in our story, Jesus is present. And this is what makes all the difference. Why did Jesus decide to go to this small town called Nain? 
Luke does not say, but perhaps we are to think that he traveled to this town for the very purpose of drawing near to this woman in her misery and to raise her only son from the dead. In fact, I do wonder if this little story is not meant to be a picture of a much larger story, namely the story of the Son of God's entrance into the world in the Incarnation to accomplish our redemption. The text says in verse 12, As Jesus drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Why did Jesus enter Nain? Well, perhaps we should ask, why did the eternal Son of God come into the world? By taking to himself a true human nature through the womb of the Virgin Mary. Answer, he came to show us compassion, love, and grace. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. John 3.16-18 through 18. Jesus came into this world in the Incarnation to show us compassion, love, and grace. Jesus also came into this world to touch us and to remove the sting of death. As Paul says, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is 1 Corinthians 15, 56-57. And then in verse 54 of the same chapter we read, it is that, that death is swallowed up in victory. And then we are able to confidently say, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? You see, Christ came into this world to touch us and to remove the very sting of death. Furthermore, Christ came into this world to say to those who trust in Him, Do not weep. Indeed, He will wipe away every tear from the eyes of those who trust in Him, and death shall be no more Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things will have passed away when the Lord returns to make all things new. Christ Jesus is able to say to all who trust in Him, Do not weep. And Christ came into this world to say to those who trust in Him, Arise. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16-17 says, The Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, And with the sound of the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Christ drew near with a compassionate heart to this widow and to this dead son of hers. He touched death. He said to the woman, Do not weep. And He said to the boy who had died, the young man who had died, Arise, and on the last day, brothers and sisters, he will say, Arise to all, and he will especially say, Arise 
to those who belong to Him, for they will arise and enter into life everlasting. You see, the point that I'm here making is that this little event in the life of Jesus, wherein He willingly entered the town of Nain and had compassion on a woman trapped in hopelessness, grief and despair because of sin and death. He drew near to her, touched death, and by the word of His power, defeated death, bringing life out of death. This is meant to be a small picture of His mission from God the Father. It is through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of the only and eternally begotten Son of God that God has shown compassion to sinners, that the sting of death is removed, and that Christ will be able to say to us, Do not weep and arise on the last day. This grieving widow in Nain was given a taste of this gift. All who have faith in Christ will enjoy the full benefits of the victory that Christ has won when at death and especially when He returns to make all things new. So why did Jesus raise the widow's son? And why does Luke tell us about it? Firstly, so that we might know for certain that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Secondly, so that we might know that He is compassionate and kind to poor sinners plagued by sin and its awful effects. And now thirdly, Jesus raised the widow's only son so that we might know for certain that Jesus has power and authority over death. This is good news for us, brothers and sisters. Jesus has power and authority over death. Death is truly a terrible thing. In fact, it is worse than most people understand. Many people think only of the physical when they think of death. They forget about the soul. When a person dies physically, they do not cease to exist. Their souls live on. Those who die bodily in their sins and apart from Christ go to eternal punishment in their soul. This is what Paul means in 1 Corinthians 2.16 when he speaks of those not in Christ passing from death to death. If you are not united to Christ by faith, you are in a state of spiritual death even now. See Ephesians 2.1. And when your body dies, your soul will continue to exist, but you will not pass from death to life, as so many think. Rather, if not in Christ, you will pass from death to death. Stated differently, things will go from bad to worse for those who die in the guilt of their sins. This is the clear teaching of Holy Scripture. I understand that it is not pleasant teaching, but it is the truth of God's Word. When you attend a funeral for someone who did not trust in Christ, and you hear someone confidently say, they are in a better place, you've been told a lie. The Word of God says otherwise. You may see Luke 16, 19 through 31, or Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15, um, to know that this is the truth. The souls of those who die in their sins do not go to a better place, but instead they go to punishment and torment. Question 42 of our Catechism tells the truth by asking, What shall be done to the wicked at their death? By the way, we are all wicked by nature. But those with true faith in Christ cannot be called wicked. For they have been washed and they have been renewed. The word wicked here refers to those who do not have Christ as Lord and Savior, who remain in their sin, therefore. So what shall be done to the wicked at their death, at the moment of their death? The souls of the wicked shall at death, listen to this, be cast into the torments of hell, and their bodies lie in their graves to the resurrection and judgment 
of the great day. This is truth. This is the teaching of Holy Scripture. Question 43 then asks, What shall be to the wicked at the day of judgment? Answer, At the day of judgment, the bodies of the wicked being raised out of their grave shall be sentenced together with their souls to unspeakable torments with the devil and his angels forever. As I have said, death is a terrible thing. It involves far more than the death and decomposition of the body. The soul continues to exist. Those who die in their sins transition from death to death. And these will be raised bodily on the last day, and they will be judged, sentenced, and banished from the presence of God, body and soul, forever. But death for the Christian, death for the one who has faith in Christ, is different. I will not say that it is a pleasant thing. It is still a trial. It is still a grievous thing, both for the one who dies and for the loved ones who are left behind. But hear this, brothers and sisters, for the Christian, for the one who has faith in Christ, the sting and victory of death are removed. Death for the Christian is like a bite of a snake whose fangs and venom have been removed. It is still an unpleasant thing. It is still a troubling thing. We might even say it is still a scary thing. But it is not a damaging or deadly thing, for all who are in Christ Jesus will pass from life to life through the doorway of death, unless we are alive when the Lord returns. And then we will simply be caught up with Him and transferred to glory. I want you to listen to Baptist Catechism 40. What benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? Answer, the souls of believers are at death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory And their bodies, being still united to Christ, do rest in their graves till the resurrection. Question 41 then asks, What benefits do believers receive from Christ at the resurrection? Answer, At the resurrection, which is still future, you know. This is speaking of when Christ returns to raise the dead, to judge, and to make all things new. At the resurrection, believers, being raised up in glory, shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment and made perfectly blessed both in soul and body, in full enjoyment of God to all eternity. Now we should ask, how is this possible? How is this possible? How is it possible that the sting and victory of death has been removed for these? It is possible because of the victory that Jesus has won. He lived for those given to Him by the Father. He died for these. He was buried for these. And He was raised again from the dead on the third day for these. Christ has defeated sin, Satan, and death for His people. And all who trust in Him, all who are united to Him by faith, share in this victory and in these spoils. To quote Hebrews 2.9, Jesus Christ is the one who for a little while was made lower than the angels. He was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that He, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. The writer of Hebrews tells us that Christ tasted death For everyone, that is to say, 
for the many sons of, of, of the many sons that God has determined to bring uh, to glory. Or consider Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 26. He puts this so beautifully. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, he says. And he calls Christ here the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, he's the first of a kind. He has been raised from the dead, but he is not the only one who will be raised from the dead. He is the first fruits. He's the first of a kind. I go on quoting Paul again, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So all who are in Adam are in a state of death and will remain there. But all who are in Christ, who are united to Him by faith, are in a state of grace and life. And when the Lord returns, they will be translated into that glorious and eternal state, the new heavens and new earth. I want you to notice that when Jesus touched the dead son of the widow, He spoke with personal authority. Young man, I say to you, Arise. Notice that he did not pray that God would raise the young man. I think we are to contrast this with the story of Elijah's raising of the widow's son as recorded in 1 Kings 17. By the way, do you notice the similarities in the story? I I, I hoped that you would pick up on them as I read them. Uh, We are told of Elijah coming to the precipice of the town and beginning to enter into it. And and Luke introduces this story in, in, in the same way. He wants us to see the connection, but also there are things to contrast here. Elijah the prophet did not speak with personal authority as Jesus did. Instead, Elijah the prophet cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, you have, um, excuse me, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. You see, it was not Elijah who raised the widow's son in those days, but the Lord working through him. But Jesus spoke as if he himself possessed authority over death and had the power to give life. He said, Young man, I say to you, Arise. Jesus could raise the dead by the word of His power because He is the Lord God incarnate. He raised the dead by the word of His power three times in His earthly ministry. He raised the widow's son here in Luke 7.14. He raised the young daughter of Jairus in Luke 8.54. He also raised His dear friend Lazarus as recorded in John 11.43. He was able to raise these up by the word of His power because He is God incarnate. And He is able to raise the dead on the last day and to impart eternal life to all who come to Him by faith because He is the Lord's Messiah, the God-man, the second and greater Adam who has won the victory over sin, Satan, and death. By His victory, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Him. 
And it is because of his victory that he is able to show compassion to his people. He is able to lay his hand on them and say, Do not weep. And on the last day he will say, Arise. He is able to do this, to raise them up and to give them eternal life and glory because he is the Lord's Messiah, the second and greater Adam who has defeated sin, Satan, and even death itself. I'll move this sermon towards a conclusion by asking you a few questions that I do hope will help you to apply this text to your own life. First of all, I must ask you, do you believe that Jesus did in fact raise this widow's only son from the dead by His word and authority? And that He Himself was raised from the dead on the third day after being crucified and buried for the sins of others? Do you believe that what the Scriptures say is true. Do you believe it? If so, secondly I ask you, do you understand the significance of these things? You might believe that they really happened, and that is a good start. But I am asking you, do you understand the significance of these things? What do these events mean, therefore? What do they mean for us? If Jesus raised the dead, and if He Himself was raised from the dead to an incorruptible and eternal life and glory, then He has conquered death. And this could be said of no other man. The son of the widow that was raised by God through Elijah was truly raised from the dead. But he was not raised to an incorruptible life and glory. Are you following along with me here? He was raised miraculously to live in this world again and in this life again, and the man died again and was buried. The same is true for the son of the widow in Luke 7, for Jairus' daughter and for Lazarus. These all were raised. The true miracle was performed. Jesus did there demonstrate His, His power and His authority. He was indeed God incarnate, and therefore He could give life and bring it out of death. Uh, That is all marvelous and true. But these were raised up, not to glory. They were raised up to live in this world again. And they died again. And they were buried, you see. Jesus was raised. And afterward, He ascended into heaven. And this is so very important to notice. This means that by virtue of His finished work, and by virtue of the victory that He won through His life, death, burial, and and, and resurrection. He does not only have the power to raise us from the dead so that we might die again. No, He has the power to raise those who are His bodily and to bring them to glory, body and soul, and to keep them incorruptibly forever and ever in the place that He has prepared for them. Do you believe that Christ rose from the dead and ascended? If so, then rejoice in the fact that He has the power to grant this gift to all who are united to Him by faith. He has the power not only to give us a longer life here on earth, He has the power to give us eternal life in heaven, which He has earned. Thirdly, I ask, have you turned from your sins and placed your faith in this Jesus who was crucified, buried, raised, and then ascended? For it is those who trust in Jesus and have Him as Lord that benefit from the victory over sin and death that He has won. You see, it is through faith in Him that we are united to Him in His death and resurrection. It is through faith in Him 
that our sins are washed away. It is through faith in Him that we have the hope of life everlasting. Faith or trust, which is always accompanied by obedience, is the thing that links us to Jesus. That is the thing that tethers us to Him. And so I am asking you, do you trust in Him? Or are you still trusting in some other thing? The fourth and final question is for all who have professed faith in Christ, and it is this. Do you have joy, hope, and peace in your hearts today? And will you have it even at the moment of death? I'm asking this question of you because I am afraid that many who have sincere faith in Christ do lack joy, hope, and peace in this life, and even in the face of death. And they lack it in part because they have not reflected deeply on these truths that we have considered this morning. Brothers and sisters, I encourage you to go down to the town of Naim, uh, mentally, of course, metaphorically speaking, and to carefully contemplate this scene of misery and mourning, followed by hope and rejoicing. Go there and contemplate these things. Ask yourself, do I believe that they really happened? And more than this, do I understand the significance? And do I believe that Christ is indeed able to raise us up unto glory on the last day? Do I believe it truly and sincerely in the heart? If we do, it is going to bring to us a degree of joy and hope and peace. The stronger our faith, the stronger our confidence in these things, the deeper our understanding, the stronger our joy, hope, and peace will be in this life and even at the moment of death. Better yet, do not only go to Nain, but go to the foot of the cross of Christ. Contemplate deeply the darkness and the death of our Savior. Follow His body to the tomb. See that on the third day He was raised. And do not forget that 40 days later He ascended to glory. Contemplate these truths carefully and then ask, what difference should this make for me today and especially at the hour of my death, brothers and sisters, if we truly believe that these things happened, if we truly grasp their significance and have personal and heartfelt trust in Jesus, the result should be unending joy, hope, and peace. Yes, even at the moment of death. Lord, we believe and help our unbelief. Let's bow together for prayer. Father in heaven, I do ask that you would give us understanding as we come to the scriptures. These stories that are told to us in the Gospels are marvelous stories. I am afraid that we are prone to read them so quickly and to not think much of them. Help us to understand their true significance. God, we thank you that you have sent the Son into the world to show us such compassion and grace. We know that it was your love, Father, that motivated the sending of the Son. For God so loved the world, we are told, that you gave your only begotten Son. Help us to remember the great love that you have for us. Help us to see and to know for certain that you are with us, even in the midst of our suffering. You are with us, even as we suffer the pains of death. Oh Lord, help us to know for certain that the victory has been won, and that the sting of death has been removed for all who are in Christ Jesus. And grant us joy and hope and peace. Strengthen our faith, O God, we pray in Christ's name.